Hidden Gems, it's Lauren with Hidden, a true crime podcast. As a TV reporter, I learned the art of visual storytelling. So if you're like me, you enjoy listening, but also viewing. You can actually head to our YouTube channel, Hidden True Crime, to watch these interviews. Hit the subscribe button for surprise lives and breaking news. And for exclusive content, become a Patreon member at patreon.com slash hidden true crime. You'll find bonus episodes, early releases, and insider info. Thank you for your endless support. Hidden, a true crime podcast. A forensic psychologist and a journalist explore the hidden motives behind unthinkable crimes while examining our deepest fears along the way. Hello, Hidden Gems. Thank you for coming here tonight for an important case that Dr. John and I have been covering. We talked about it last week to give a brief overview of those that are our new. Lindsay Clancy is a mother in Massachusetts, 32-year-old mother who strangled her three children. Of course, she's not guilty of anything yet. Let's point that out. Presumably murdered her children. While her husband went to grab takeout. We discussed postpartum depression, postpartum psychosis, last Friday. And this week we have an update. Lindsay Clancy was arraigned and we want to show a bit of that arraignment to help explain and give a summary of what we learned this week and then discuss it. It presents a different picture than last week for sure. It's worth discussing because the prosecution, the DA had a lot of information that we didn't know and it's interesting information. I'm not sure it changes anything. I still think that Lindsay Clancy fits probably the category that we talked about last week of psychotic slash depressed type mother for filicide. I don't think it changes that, but it certainly raises some questions. I don't have any answers here. I think we need to have a discussion about this. I'm not professing to have a strong opinion here. I think ultimately the Lindsay Clancy case will be decided by experts who interview her and spend a lot of time with her and really do a deep dive and figure out what's going on. And that is not me at the moment. But I I, I think the new information is interesting and it's worth talking about. And I think it can hopefully enlarge our understanding of filicide. Let's play a bit of this arraignment. Count one murder, juvenile one. Count two, 265 section one, murder, juvenile. So plea of not guilty will be entered. Please be advised while this case is pending, any violation of state, federal, local law may result in a bail being revoked and be held without bail. One of the first questions that Lindsay Clancy asked was, do I need an attorney? She knew that she had murdered her children and she had the clarity, focus, and mental acumen to focus on protecting her own rights and interests. On the morning of Tuesday, January 24th, 2023, the defendant took her five-year-old daughter, Cora, to the pediatricians for an appointment. She interacted with a receptionist, nursing staff, and a doctor. There were apparently no issues with the defendant's de- demeanor or behavior as she completed the appointment and was allowed to leave with Cora without any issues or concerns. When she returned home, she went outside with Cora and her three-year-old son, Dawson, to play in the snow. They built a snowman. The defendant sent photos to her mother and to her husband. She texted with them. Nothing in the text was out of the ordinary or any sign of any distress or trouble. Back inside later that day at 4.02 p.m., the defendant searched on her phone, Kids Miralax. She then searched at Takeout 3V via her cell phone at 4.13 p.m. Immediately after doing that, she used Apple Maps on her phone to determine how long it would take someone to drive from her home in Duxbury to 3V Restaurant in Plymouth. 
so she would know how long someone would be gone if they ran that errand. At 4.53 p.m., the defendant texted her husband, who was working in his home office in their basement. She texted, any chance you want to do takeout from 3V? I didn't cook anything. It's been a long day. This was an unusual request, as when the family ordered takeout, they'd usually go somewhere closer to home, but it was a place that they had been in the past. Patrick Clancy texted back yes, and then the defendant asked him to check the menu. At 5.06 p.m., the, the, the husband texted the defendant um, asking uh, what she was going to get. She responded, a Mediterranean Power Bowl. She spelled it correctly, and it was something that was on the menu. He then told her that he wanted the scallop and pork belly risotto. At 5.10 p.m., the defendant called 3V Restaurant to place the order. She got the order correct. She gave the correct name for pickup, Patrick. The hostess who took the call said there was nothing out of the ordinary about this call. She was able to understand the defendant, that um, her voice was not slurred or impaired in any way. At 5.15 p.m., Patrick Clancy headed out the door to run these errands at the defendant's request. As he left, she texted him Pedialax liquid stool softener. Surveillance footage shows Mr. Clancy at CVS on Summer Street in Kingston at 5.32 p.m. He goes to the medication aisle, the children's medication aisle. Phone records show that he called the defendant at 5.33 p.m. and she did not answer the phone. She then calls him back at 5.34 p.m. and the call lasted 14 seconds. He's there at the store unsure of which medication to get and she tells him exactly what she wants. He had no issues communicating with her. It was a completely normal call, although he did mention that she seemed like she was in the middle of something. He is on surveillance footage during this time, exiting that aisle and appeared to be using his phone. He then heads to the register, makes his purchase, and leaves the store at 5.37 p.m. He's next seen on footage at 3V restaurant at 5.54 p.m. He picks up the, the food and he's out of there within a minute. When he arrives home, the first thing he noticed was the silence. He did not see or hear the defendant or the children. He actually called her cell phone at 6.09 p.m. looking for them, and she did not answer. He went to their bedroom on the second floor and the door was locked. He was able to open it, and when he looked inside, he saw blood on the floor in front of a full-length mirror and the window open. He immediately runs downstairs and into the backyard where he finds the defendant laying on the ground. She appeared to have cuts on her wrists and neck, but he stated to 911 that those wounds were no longer bleeding. She was conscious. He called 911. During this time, he asked the defendant, what did you do? She responded to him, I tried to kill myself and jumped out the window. During the 911 call, Patrick can be heard asking the defendant, where are the kids? He later told police that she replied, in the basement. So immediately after this happened, she knew what she had done and she knew where the kids were. When EMS arrived, he asked them to stay with her so he could go find his kids. The 911 call kept going. Patrick can be heard on the 911 call entering the home and heading to the basement. At one point, he calls out, guys. He can then be heard screaming in agony and shock as he found his children. His screams seem to get louder and more agonized as the time passes. Cora and Callan were on the floor in the den area of the finished basement, which is to the left when you walk down the stairs. 
while Dawson was alone on the floor in his father's home office, which is to the right when you go down the stairs. Each child still had the exercise band that was used to strangle them tied around their necks when their father found them. Dawson and Callan were face down on the floor. Cora was on her side with her torso tor tor turned towards the floor. He removed the bands and begged them to breathe. He continued to scream uncontrollably and screamed for officers to come to the basement. The dispatchers are hearing this and they send help down to the basement and when they encounter Patrick, he yells out, she killed the kids. The police rushed the children to ambulances that brought them to the hospital and unfortunately Cora and Dawson were declared dead at the hospital. Callan was med flighted to Boston Children's Hospital. Medical staff was able to restart his pulse but not his brain activity. He was placed on life support for several days before passing away. The defendant was transported to South Shore Hospital and then to a Boston area hospital where she remains. She sustained several broken bones in her back and her rib cage. The police were able to find several notebooks in the defendant's home pursuant to a search warrant and also notes on her phone that were similar to journal entries. In the months, weeks, and days preceding January 24, 2023, the defendant meticulously detailed her daily activities, her children's lives, her mental state, and her medication use. Her writing was clear, precise, and articulate. She never indicated that she was hallucinating, delusional, or had disordered thoughts or speech. In all of her writing, she appears to know who she is, where she is, the date, and with whom she's interacted. She wrote a note on her phone the day before killing the children, stating that she had, quote, a touch of postpartum anxiety, end quote, around returning to work. So you have a paraplegic who can't walk, who is definitely a danger to herself, and the government wants to put her in where? Framingham State Prison? Plymouth House of Correction? There's no way that any humane person would do that, especially within the structure of our criminal justice system, where a person is presumed innocent. And I'm not suggesting with the facts that the government has read, but she has a good defense. She's got a darn good defense to this case, because that's what happened. And I just want to share with you, Your Honor, one of the things that's interesting. When I was in the House, um, I came across a, a drawer that had a bunch of pill bottles in it, and I called the DA and I said, I got these pill bottles, and made arrangements, I'm going to be giving them to them. Um, and it's all the Prozac and the Trazodone and all that stuff. But inside the drawer was this little vase. And uh, I didn't know what it was. It just looked like a little vase to me. And my wife said to me, oh, that looks like a, uh, a wish vase. I said, what's a wish vase? She said, when people write down little wishes and they put little pieces of paper and they put them inside the vase. And there are literally dozens of these little pieces of paper that talk about Lindsay's wish for happiness and health for her children, that she could get pregnant again, that she would be able to be with her children, little Callan, Dawson, Cora, that they would be happy, healthy, and successful. This is not a woman, Your Honor, that had any reason to harm those innocent children. My request, Your Honor, is that the court would put her on a GPS if you feel that's required, 
and let the doctors continue to treat her, let her go to Spalding Rehab. Clearly a very difficult thing to listen to for us to hear the new details, which is why John and I keep discussing this case in our home, because it's just so hard to make sense of for me. And so here I am asking Dr. John, who happens to be, for those new to our channel, my husband. Uh, so sometimes he's uh, Dr. Baby. He's a forensic and clinical psychologist, and I am his wife. I am a investigative journalist and was a TV reporter for 10 years. After watching that, I want to ask you, John, what your thoughts are, because this new information really threw me through a loop this week, trying to understand it. It certainly complicates the picture quite a bit. I think for me, this raises more questions than answers. I don't really have a strong opinion here, but I do want to raise some questions. I noticed we're already getting some great comments, so I think we'll have a dialogue about this. Oftentimes when I think of filicide, I think of the famous quote from Hamlet. So at the beginning of Hamlet, there's a couple of sentries on the the roof of the battlement. They're protecting the castle, and Hamlet's father's ghost appears. And Hamlet's father's ghost, who's King Hamlet, he says, murder most fall, strange, and unnatural. It's a famous line from Hamlet. I probably won't win any awards for my Shakespearean interpretation there, but <laughs> but this whole idea of, of murder being foul, strange, and unnatural, I think, applies to filicide. That I think filicide is one of those types of murders that's really, really hard to understand and to wrap one's mind around, including myself, no matter how many times I see it or think about it. It's so unnatural. That quote, I think, really strikes me emotionally when I think of filicide and I think of this case, because most of us recognize that killing children is not normal. And it's so outside the range of normality that, that it can have such a huge impact. So having said that, I want to address what the prosecution talked about. And I'm going to read a quote here from Alice Walker. Alice Walker is a Swiss psychiatrist. She's well known for a book called The Drama of the Gifted Child. She also wrote a book called about the criminal mind that most, most people, less, fewer people are aware of called For Your Own Good. This is from that particular book. Walker says, every crime contains a concealed story that can be deciphered from the way the misdeed is enacted and it, from its specific details. The Walker quote, I think, is important in this scenario or this context in terms of asking the question, is there a concealed story here? And how can we decipher that story from the misdeed? So when you learn that the children are strangled with an exercise band, I noticed somebody said in the comments that they'll never see exercise bands the same way. I agree. When I heard that, I was taken aback a little bit because when you strangle a child with an exercise band, that's not an immediate death. That takes time. In other words, I think there's quite a bit of suffering that you're witnessing and experiencing with your child when you do something that extreme. And when a child is screaming and begging for their life, and we're talking minutes to kill someone with, you know, multiple minutes to kill someone with an exercise band, I guess, depending on someone's strength, that when a child is begging for their life and you continue, does that, and this is the question, does that indicate that the person is not having any remorse or empathy? Does it indicate 
potentially, and again, I'm just raising questions here. Does it indicate that maybe there's a sadistic component to this? Is there is there a dark side to this story that we don't know? In other, so let's go back to Alice Walker. What's the concealed story? I don't know. That's what I want to know. I don't know what the concealed story is. I think none of us know. I think we're going to start trying to figure that out. But the manner of death here, it is, as Walker points out, gives us maybe some clues. Now, it could be as simple as she's psychotic. And one of her ex- explanations was that she was hearing voices that, you know, so perhaps this could be a psychotic break with command hallucinations, which when it comes to psychosis, command hallucinations could be a motive. Maybe it's that, but it certainly raises questions. And the whole idea of premeditation that the prosecution brought up about sending her husband out for food and knowing the exact time, how long he would be out, definitely raises questions about her mental state at the time, whether she was oriented and understood the consequences of her actions, whether she understood the wrongness of her actions. So an insanity defense will typically involve those components of understanding consequences and understanding the difference between right and wrong. Again, those, those are probably issues that a mental health professional is going to have to sort through and figure out. One of the things I think about when I think about, sometimes when I look at a crime scene or think about a crime scene, I think about, is there something metaphorical in this, this crime scene that can help us understand it? And I, this is speculation. I could be way off base here, but I'm going to throw this out just as food for thought that the exercise bans indicate that, that the children suffered. Their deaths were not immediate and quick and painless. There was, they were prolonged. And so that, that certainly raises interesting questions. The other side of that is this crime is about suffocation and strangulation. And the metaphor I sometimes think of with, with her maybe is, does she feel suffocated by her life? Does she feel suffocated by the pressures of work and family and being a mother and by her ex- high expectations of being a mother and by maybe her own perfectionism? I don't know. You know, I, that's a question I have. And so maybe maybe that's part of this is those really high and unrealistic expectations she has about being a mother and balancing work and family and all these other components of her life. And and maybe that was overwhelming for her. I don't know. You know, again, what's, what's the concealed story in this crime scene? Which we don't know, but as we, we don't know, but as we follow this case, we hope to learn more. And when we do, we'll talk about it. A lot of great questions here. I want to thank everyone who leaves their comments and their questions on our YouTube channel. After our lives, we go back and look at those before doing our next live to bring up interesting questions and comments. So thank you for those. Always leave your comments and questions if they're not answered on our YouTube channel. Eves writes, and and Eves mentions she's a therapist of 30 years when they write this. I'm guessing that the husband would not have left his wife alone with the kids to get takeout if he had had ever so slightest inkling of what she was about to do. That says to me, she was probably pretty good at hiding her inner world and how desperate she ultimately was. That level of subterfuge really complicates assessment and ongoing care. This podcast is the first I've heard of this unspeakable tragedy, and my heart bleeds for all those directly affected by this horrific event. I cannot imagine what, in any universe, what that poor husband and father must be going through. Yeah, this this is a really interesting insight, because this this gets to some of the issues I want to talk about tonight, and that is... 
and I want to I want to read back a little part of that quote again, which is she was probably pretty good at hiding her inner world and how desperate she ultimately was. That level of subterfuge really complicates assessment and ongoing care. Absolutely. That's a great point. So it raises the question I want to raise here, which is, and this isn't talked about that much when we talk about filicides. Last week, I talked about the two main types of filicide, and those are psychotic depressed, which is indicative of mental health issues. And the other category of filicide would be more of the psychopathic narcissist type. Those are categories by Jeffrey McKee. He's a forensic psychologist. He's done some interesting work on filicide. And I would still maintain that that Lindsay Clancy fits the psychotic depressed type for sure. And as we talked about last week, perhaps somebody like Lori Daybell fits more of the psychopathic narcissist type. So we talked about that last week, showing the distinctions and categories. But there's a this idea of subterfuge brings up the question of or it leads to the question I would ask about Lindsay Clancy, which is who is Lindsay Clancy in, in short? We know that her coworkers really loved her and thought she was kind and compassionate. And her husband felt the same way even after she murdered her children. Of course, she's not guilty of anything yet. Let's point that out. Presumably murdered her children. One of her, one of her coworkers, a nurse said, I do not know a better mother than Lindsay Clancy. She lived and breathed for her children, Erica Severi, to just an example of numerous letters that were sent to her defense attorney, half of them coming from her nurse coworkers. Right. And, and again, I'm raising questions. I'm not saying this is true for her. This is, this is something that forensic psychologists and psychiatrists I'm, I'm, are probably going to spar over and clash over. They're going to try to figure these issues out. But when it comes to filicide, there is a question about what I would call pre-morbid functioning, or in other words, how was this person psychologically? What was their mental state prior to maybe having a family growing up? Were there any issues? Were there any mental health issues? Were there any characterological issues growing up as a child? And how would those factor into a crime of this nature? And I think those could be important issues because there is some argument that developmental failures or deficits, which impact mental health, which then impact or, and or personality. So developmental deficits might impact mental illness and or characterological issues, which then impact our ability to cope with stress and potentially in a psychotic break when there's psychosis that would easily overwhelm any ego controls or defense mechanisms we might have, which would then essentially potentially lead to some type of, of maybe some type of repressed rage. And so the question I would have, as this comment mentioned about her hiding her inner world in the subterfuge, is there some type of repressed rage from her childhood that we don't know about? Are there developmental deficits or traumas or adverse childhood experiences that might be impacting some of her behaviors here. And that, and again, I, this is not to say that she's not psychotic and that she's not, she wouldn't be judged to be legally insane. I'm just asking questions that any good forensic evaluator would ask, which is how was she functioning as a child and as an adolescent? What was she like pre-family before she had children, was this psychotic break highly unusual? Were there any indications of 
psychosis as a child? Were there any indications of personality disorder deficits, such as borderline personality disorder or narcissism? Right. Those are, and I don't, I don't know. It doesn't appear to me that those would be accurate assessments of her, but I honestly don't know. A quick word from our sponsor. While Shopify has already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world, did you know Shopify can do the same thing for your very own retail store? With Shopify, you unite both in-person and online sales, tracking every sale in one place. Hidden True Crime uses Shopify's tools to help us build marketing campaigns for all of our social media platforms, and their plug-in tools are as unique as our business, allowing us multiple ways to accept payments and promote our store. Plus, Shopify's help is always there to support our success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash hidden true crime, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash hidden true crime for a $1 per month trial period to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash hidden true crime. A quick word from our sponsor, Hidden Gems. It's Lauren and Minnie have been asking where I shop. And so I am finally coming clean with my wardrobe hack. I rent most of the clothes I wear. I love having new clothes each month and I dislike doing laundry. So renting from Armoire is a win-win. With a clothing rental membership from Armoire, you build the perfect wardrobe with high quality brands just for you. You take the five minute style quiz and select items from your personalized closet delivered straight to your door in as little as two days. And then when you're ready for new clothes and ready for someone else to do your laundry, you just swap them out for fresh styles. Armoire allows me to always have the perfect outfit, and then I send it back for more. Right now, our gems can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash hidden true crime. That's armoire.style, A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash hidden true crime to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try Armoire today. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets and so much more download the app in virginia today and get 150 dollars in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at betmgm betmgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly see betmgm.com for terms 21 plus only virginia only new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days please gamble responsibly gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER promotional offer not available in washington dc so i think the plot here thickens a little bit based upon the nature of the crime scene maybe the concealed story that's going on there and this whole notion of premeditation and again somebody can have psychosis we talked about this last week Somebody can have psychosis and still engage in a certain amount of premeditation. So that doesn't necessarily mean that she's not psychotic and this isn't a mental health issue. I think it probably is, but I think all these pieces need to be sorted out. I'll say a few things that people are saying. Could she be killing the child that she once was? Hearing that she was such a dedicated mother, you wonder if she understood a 
if she had a separation between herself and her children. Um, those are a few things that are being asked. Uh, Shelly Shell, thank you so much. Thank you for delving so deeply, she says, into darkness in order to bring what is hidden into light. Shelly Shell, thank you for understanding what our podcast is about. Thank you, Shelly. Let me quickly address your last point. There is a, a, a type of filicide that we did not address last week, and it's called extended suicide. And extended suicide is essentially when a mother sees the child as an extension of themselves. And so if they're going to commit suicide, they want to take their children with them because they don't believe anyone could possibly raise the children as well as them. And they see themselves as ultimately as the only real protectors and people that care for their child. They see themselves as the only ones that can reasonably care for their children. So it's not as common, but there is this category called extended suicide, which goes alongside altruistic filicide and psychotic filicide. So altruistic filicide and psychotic filicide, there is this other category called extended suicide. Can I share a story about that? You're making me think of a story I know I've told you before. Yeah. It happened about 10 years ago. And I had a girlfriend that I would travel with. She was a single mother. And as we were traveling on an airplane, she said to me that when she travels with her son, which she loved to do, they were big travelers, um, she would sometimes worry about the plane crashing. And she told me that if the plane ever crashed with them on it, she hoped that they both died. She did not want to leave this child without her. I was shocked. And I remember saying to her at the time, I think that I would do everything in my power to make sure that my child, that my child was saved. I, I would die for my child. And this friend disagreed. And she said, well, you don't have a child yet. You don't know. And lo and behold, now I have a child and I can say with certainty uh, that if something happened to me or, or you, John, I would do everything in my power to make sure our, our child was okay, even if we both lost our lives. And so that gets to what you're talking about with extended suicide, that there are mothers, at least what I experienced, or parents that in some way believe that their children aren't going to do well without them. Or, or I don't really understand it. And, and we've talked about this before, but I just thought I would bring this up. Right. And in this category isn't mutually exclusive. You can still have psychosis. You can still have a break from reality and still have that belief. It's possible to experience mental illness and still fall into this extended suicidal typology of, of philicidal mothers. But it is, it is interesting to think about that as a, a potential option here. In our last Hidden Live, we mentioned religion. We discussed religion and how it plays a role in certain cases. And so I, I wanted to delve into this. Samantha writes, I wish when you talk about religion in these contexts, you would be more careful to point out that the overwhelmingly vast majority of religious people who make up the majority of the world's population do not murder their children and that religion doesn't typically cause murder. Cults, maybe, but not uh, Main Street Christianity and other religions. And the many, many non-religious and religious people do both commit these types of crimes. While some evil dictators have killed in the name of religion, others have killed who are atheists. Do you want to explain why you brought up religion when it comes to filicide cases? 
Well, so uh, yes, let me clarify. I think it's it's always a little bit of a risk to mention the word religion in any context on this show because people are so passionate about it and have such strong views about religion. So I, I always try to be careful. And uh, let me clarify my point. My point was not that religion was the cause of the murders or the filicides. My point was that religion sometimes, not always, sometimes plays a role when people are psychotic, when people are disintegrating, when their selves are completely fractured and they have nothing to hang on to. Sometimes if there's religion involved or religious beliefs, they will grab onto those beliefs, often in an extreme way. So you'll see during psychotic breaks or when there's psychosis, the religious beliefs tend to be more extreme. And they give that person a lifeline. So my point was that in the case of, for example, we were talking about Lori Daybell, that in many ways, if if she does fit this category of borderline personality disorder, religion became a way for her to shore up her identity. It became a way for her to feel more coherent as a self and more whole. And so rather than feeling fractured and disintegrating, it was the religious beliefs and specifically extreme religious beliefs that gave her a bit of a lifeline. And so I wasn't saying that religion was the cause of her behaviors or Lindsay Clancy's behaviors or anyone's behaviors. I was merely pointing out that sometimes during psychotic breaks, that religion or polit- political views or ideology, usually more extreme, it's not, again, it's, it's more expansive than religion, but oftentimes more extreme beliefs come into play because a psychotic person will look for a way to shore up their disintegrating identity. And oftentimes that will be something that involves ideology or religion. And so I'm not making a causal connection between religion and murder at all. In fact, I'm just pointing out that the role that religion or ideology might play in terms of helping people cope with mental illness or more specifically psychosis in filicide cases. It makes sense to me. Our beliefs uh, help create who we are, right? They're a crucial component of our identities. And so psychosis is the loss of our, or the potential loss of our identities. And so again, that's, that's, that's why somebody may resort to extreme measures or behaviors when they're psychotic because they're in, they've lost that sense of self. They lost that sense of identity. They're fracturing, they're falling apart. And I think that has to be one of the worst feelings in the world because it feels like you're not grounded on anything. There's nothing to stand on. Your, your world is, you're falling into the abyss. And when you're falling into the abyss, you're more likely to resort to extreme behaviors. Not always, again, like many psychotic mothers, many women and mothers experience postpartum psychosis who never murder their kids. They have a very hard time. They get treatment. Lindsay Clancy sought treatment. She did receive some treatment. They come out of that fine. So I'm only talking about, even with psychosis, I'm only talking about outliers or extreme cases. Not all cases. This next question is kind of heavy. You ready? Because <laughs> I think that this might be something that's on everyone's mind, or maybe I shouldn't speak for everyone. How about this? It's on my mind. Okay. I think that's better. <laughs> uh, it's from Matt B. He writes, it's interesting for who and for what mental health conditions we choose to have more sympathy. 
Some suffering appears to be more valid, and maybe it is. A boy who cannot connect with people, has a bad home life, gets bullied, doesn't receive any mental health help, and then acts out with violence like a school shooter, is morally reprehensible. However, an adult mother who also has severe mental health problems is getting treatment, kills three young children, is more understood, and her pain is felt. I am not sure I agree with how our society selectively applies compassion. I hear you, Matt. How, how do you choose? I don't know if he's referencing Brian Koberger here, but let's say for the sake of argument, he is, you know, you and I, as you know, Lauren, we, you and I uncovered, or you more than I <laughs> uncovered the, the Tapa talk forum discussions. Our team with, uncovered. Our team did. Yeah. New York times uncovered that kidding. Yeah, the New York times uncovered <laughs> it. Right. Let's okay. give them a shout out. We're referring to Brian Koberger's Tapa Talk forum, where he was a young teenager sharing some mental health symptoms that he was having on a health forum. The 16-year-old Brian Koberger, certainly in my mind, deserves compassion. And I agree that why would we disregard that? Why would we disregard that and potentially extend more compassion to Lindsay Clancy? I will say this, so that's a question. I don't I don't have an answer, but I will say this though, that I talked a lot about when we talked about Koberger, I talked about a, a lot about the research of Peter Langman. And Langman essentially makes a very similar distinction. So interestingly enough, Langman essentially categorizes school shooters or mass shooters into three categories. The two most prominent of those categories are psychotic and psychopathic. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> so in other words, if we look at Langman's research and we look at some of the research on filicide, those are the two broad categories of both mass shooters and people who commit women or men who commit filicide. And so I think this idea of compassion would extend more. My take on this for Matt B would be that I think we tend to have a lot more compassion for people with mental health issues as opposed to people that are psychopathic. So the psychopath who has no remorse and no conscience and doesn't care about, you know, so we haven't heard from Koberger, but it seems that he doesn't seem to have a lot of remorse. I mean, I guess we'll find out more. Maybe he does. I think there's a presumption that mass shooters, at least as adults, as they get older, really just don't care. They lack empathy and remorse. And it's it's hard as a community, I think, you can't have a functioning community without people that have empathy and care about their neighbors. So I think it's harder to extend compassion to people that we either perceive to be psychopathic or that are psychopaths, as opposed to people that are having mental health problems that reach out for help and want help and seek help and they still commit a horrendous act. And by the way, in the forensic world, this is a really important distinction because mental health issues are much more likely to be seen as something that would qualify for an insanity defense as opposed to a personality disorder like narcissistic personality disorder or antisocial personality disorder. Personality disorders are seen as way more entrenched and way more difficult to change and not necessarily related to insanity. I think that 
is part of the answer to this question too. That in general, I think even in forensic world, even in forensic assessments, that people with psychosis are seen differently than people with personality disorders. If somebody perceives even the 16-year-old Koberger to be utterly deficient of any empathy, he's probably going to receive less compassion than somebody like Lindsay Clancy, who seems very compassionate and she's a nurse and people seem to universally love her. She's naturally, I would assume, going to receive much more compassion, which by the way, would take us to the next question. Well, I'm going to read the next question. I'm just imagining waking up to myself one day and realizing that I killed my children and the extreme pain of that. I just can't even think about it without crying. I guess that's not a question, but it's it's an extension of the discussion we're having, which is that I, I would imagine Lindsay Clancy in the same way, waking up one day and realizing what she did and feeling guilty for the rest of her life and not having a day or a minute go by where she's not feeling some sense of remorse and guilt. In some ways, the worst punishment you could ever give her would be to have her deal with that day in and day out. Whereas I think somebody like Brian Koberger, he would not wake up day after day with the same pain and the same suffering that Lindsay Clancy probably would, that he probably doesn't have a lot of remorse. I, I could be wrong. We haven't heard from him, but let's say in general, let's say we're not talking about Koberger. A psychopath isn't going to wake up with the same guilt day after day and remorse. Whereas I, I could envision somebody like Lindsay Clancy doing that. This is an extended... <laughs> This is my extended answer to the previous question. And this response here is 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 spot on. I, I agree that CSC says, how on earth is killing your precious children and being paralyzed to think about it 24 hours a day? Exactly. And so I think I think that's why we have more compassion for somebody like Lindsay Clancy than we do for a psychopath or somebody that kills without remorse. Jerry writes, this case is very different to me than Andrea Yates. She was known to be suffering for months with severe mental illness. This one seems much more spontaneous. But I will say there was something about Andrea Yates that I read to John earlier, and it felt like there was some planning on Andrea Yates' part as well. She had put the dog, you know, in a separate room that she usually didn't put the dog she realized how long her husband would be gone and that this was the moment to be able to do this. Um, I do fault him a lot more. She was seeking help. There were a lot more warning signs. It was very clear she had tried to commit suicide multiple times before. All of these things are very different. Um, but premeditation, you know, she was, she, and she was, she was charged of murder at first, but I, I guess... What I'm trying to say is I see a bit of premeditation there too. Right. It, in fact, Andrea Yates was initially convicted of murder because one of the original evaluators talked about the fact that she put her dog in a kennel and that was an example of premeditation. And she had filled up the bathtub earlier in the day with the intent of drowning her kids. So she didn't drown them immediately after she filled up the bathtub. She drowned them later. So that showed some premeditation too. I think the question here though is about, I think the argument she's making that Jerry is making here is that Andrea Yates suffered from much more severe mental illness over a longer period of time versus Lindsay Clancy perhaps being more impromptu and spontaneous. And I think that's part of the question I'm asking is we don't really know. 
I, I would we need to know more about Lindsay Clancy's mental health history and her pre-morbid, so pre, in other words, pre-psychotic functioning. It's possible she suffered from some mental illness, maybe depression or anxiety, but we don't know how severe it was, at least the members of the public. We don't know. We don't have that information yet. Again, I think that forensic evaluators will have to tease all that out. I think that's going to be their challenge is really trying to figure out if this was impulsive and spontaneous as opposed to something that could have existed well before the crimes were committed. People are asking where Andrea Yates is now. She remains. She's in a state mental hospital. So she's not in prison, but she's more than likely going to be, I would imagine she's going to be confined to a state mental hospital for most of her life or potentially the rest of her life. I remember reading once um, a few years ago that her ex-husband still visited her and checked on her, that they would still talk about the kids. I also learned that she had the choice to leave, but has chosen not to. She's chosen to stay there. Haley asked the question, does premeditation automatically invalidate plea of insanity hidden true crime? That's a great question because it's, if you know what you're doing, you know, that's what we always say about Lori Valla. Well, she knew what she was doing, which is true. She did. She manipulated people. She knew what she was doing. She plotted. She manipulated. She planned. But does that automatically invalidate a plea of insanity? Clearly, uh, Lori Vallow is now competent to stand trial, so we won't discuss that with her case. But when it comes to this case or others like Andrea Yates. It makes it more complicated. The main distinction with an insanity plea is does the person know how distinguish, to distinguish between right and wrong? And then as an adjunct to that, does the person understand the consequences of their, of their actions? Premeditation would suggest that they do understand the consequences. Again, this is a these are going to be issues for the forensic evaluators, so I'm, I'm glad I'm not in their position at the moment. I think this is going to be a really complex case to, to figure out. But premeditation would imply that someone understands the consequences of their actions, whether they understand the difference between right and wrong, whether they understand that what do whether Lindsay Clancy understood that killing her children was wrong? I, I don't know. That's a much more complicated question to answer. But premeditation certainly would speak to a better understanding of consequences as opposed to a violent act that seems to come out of nowhere with no premeditation. This is a great question, but this maybe gets into evaluating and tests and maybe criminals you evaluate in general. How can we know where Lindsay's responses are authentic and when they are perfected as they have been prior to the incident? I'm not sure you can know. Somebody doing a forensic evaluation is going to have to do a lot of testing. And so I always say that there's three components to forensic evaluations. There's multiple methods, multiple sources, and multiple hypotheses to figure it out. So the more sources you talk to, and the more methods, meaning tests and interviews, and the, the better, the more data, the more information you have, the better you're going to be able to answer these questions. So I think you're going to have to, in this case, I think there's going to be a lot of interviews and a lot of information that needs to be obtained to start sorting it out. But getting back to one of the first questions you read about how she hid a lot of, she potentially hid a lot of her inner life and maybe her inner turmoil, that certainly makes it more complicated. Well, that was the next question for me, actually. Your wife has a question, your co-host. Okay. <laughs> Would her perfected responses 
imply the way she keeps her life looking perfect to outsiders, that there's a lot more in there and that she is hiding what's really going on inside there that we don't know. That gets to the idea that psychosis potentially can overwhelm one's defenses or one's ego controls. And so psychosis has the ability to whatever's repressed. Let's say that, let's say that somebody who commits filicide has a lot of repressed rage. You would never see that rage, but with psychosis, when the defenses become overwhelmed, then that rage may be more likely to come out. So she could have defended against some type of anger or rage most of her life and it was never seen. And then for whatever reasons, because of the psychosis or maybe some triggers in her life, what I'm not sure, but some of those defenses could have been overwhelmed and hence you get more of these types of murderous impulses. Stephanie May uh, mentions, like, do you think she was wearing a mask of despair from her families and coworkers? You just sort of spoke to that. I just, I want to say that question as a comment almost as what could be possibly be going on. Thank you for being here tonight. And, and thank you for encouraging everyone to join Dr. John's book club and, and to get any bonus episodes. You can head to patreon.com slash hidden true crime. We do bonus episodes and we have Dr. John's book club where this month, we're discussing The Examined Life, which is a book I love, and it's relevant to what we're talking about now, so I want to bring it up. These things and events that happen in our life and the masks we wear and the things that are buried, they are examined in this book, hence the title. This idea of wearing different masks, I, th I think it, it seems like Lindsay Clancy might have some perfectionistic tendencies based upon some things that people have said, and I think that would speak to this really strong desire to keep any dark elements of her personality hidden or to keep any type of anger or rage hidden. And so you wouldn't, you wouldn't expect, I think with somebody like Lindsay Clancy, you wouldn't expect to see that often, maybe at times when she's really stressed out at work or, you know, you might, maybe some of her coworkers would see some of that occasionally, but I, I think she's the type of person who would keep that sort of thing really well hidden and under wraps. I'm seeing a lot of people sharing a lot of their stories of mental health. And I want everyone to know that we did share a phone number in the description of this video for those uh, that are looking for help for postpartum depression or for those you love, for resources, anything that is in the description of this video. I want to remind people of that. Everyone, thanks so much for being here tonight. And until next week, good night. Good night.